Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're reading verses 1 to 13. In Mark 13, we're in the 13th chapter as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We're coming off of Jesus' teachings um, regarding his dialogues with the Sanhedrin, the members of it, the Pharisees, and of course we have the Sadducees, and the scribes. And of course they come to Jesus and there's a lot of conversation with them. Um, and then of course we saw this incredible um, teaching on humility, right? To not follow the example of the scribes as they sought after respect and honor in public courts. Um, and then, of course, he pointed us in the direction of this poor widow who gave two copper coins. And he looked at that as an example of true humility. And, of course, humility is the mark of the kingdom, isn't it? The people of the kingdom and the followers of Christ are marked by their humble, uh, childlike faith, right? We've learned all of these, all of these things before. Uh, this is an incredible m moment in Mark's gospel for Mark's now his uh, exit of the temple. And this will be, of course, the last time. He is teaching within it. So let's turn to Mark 13, verses 1 to 13. Chapter 13 is the last speech, the last discourse of Jesus before his death, uh, at least in Mark's gospel. And it's a pretty important one. Its equivalent can be found in both Luke and Mark, and famously in Matthew 24. A lot of people read this chapter and they think of it as sort of uh, apocalyptic, right? Speaking of the end times, we call it the parousia, right, chapter. Um, it's not necessarily the case there are elements of that but we'll 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 walk through this chapter and, and we'll learn in the coming weeks what mark 13 really means so let's turn to the first 13 verses i'll read from my bible and you can follow in yours this is the word of god as he was going out of the temple one of his disciples said to him teacher behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and jesus said to him do you see these great buildings not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but will say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord unto you this day. Uh, in its initial reading, it's not necessarily the most encouraging passage. I don't know if this is, uh, you know, you will be hated by all is really what you want to be hanging on your walls or on your computer wallpapers or whatever it may seem. Um, but this is an incredible teaching from Jesus, and there's an incredible truth here that we need to exposit and understand properly. Our sermon is entitled, when our temple falls down. 
and uh, we'll examine the text. But before we begin, let's quickly bow our heads in prayer. God, we come to your word in humility, and we ask for its truth to be bestowed to us by the power of the Spirit. We understand that our minds are not capable of knowing your word and understanding your word, its meaning and its teaching in ways that it ought to. So we ask and we yield ourselves to the Spirit for him to teach us at this time. May the words of your servant be true to the people of God, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this morning I went to Christ Church. Um, of course, I interned there, so I've been attending services. Today we had a special guest, Brian Chapel. He was, uh, Sam and I were had the pleasure of being in Brian Chapel's class this week for uh, an intensive course on ex- expository preaching. Brian Chapel, if you know, is the author of uh, Christ-Centered Preaching, and those of you, I mean, like 99% of you are not preachers, so you probably haven't read this book, uh, but it is probably the eminent book on expository preaching in all of uh, Christendom. Um, it has been anyways uh, for its existence and since its writing. I had the pleasure of reading this book many, many years ago, about almost nine years ago now, and to have finally like kind of meet this guy and actually hear from him directly how to preach. Uh, I want to like give you good news other than the good news of Jesus today, which is this. After 11 years of ministry, friends, I finally learned how to preach. So um, this is the first sermon that will be a proper sermon. <laughs> And uh, I have the unfortunate reality of having Sam here, who will judge me on everything we learned this week. And uh, he now knows how to critique my sermons, so that's good news for all. Anyways, um, yeah, this morning we, we had an uh, incredible teaching from Dr. Chapel, And, uh, of course, he's a PCA minister, which is also a bonus for us. Um, and uh, he actually, in the bulletin, um, added the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, of course, each week in our service, we go through the Heidelberg and it just so happens, by God's grace and mercy and his providence, that the very first line of my sermon today is Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. So let's begin. The very first question, friends, of the Heidelberg Catechism. Does anyone know? It famously asks this question. What is our only comfort in life and in death? The answer, even more famous perhaps, reads this. That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. In the very beginning pages of our Bibles, our great federal head parents, Adam and Eve, uh, ate of the forbidden tree. Right, Pretty famous story. And as soon as they did so, they thus set forth in their hearts and in our own hearts this evil notion that comfort, comfort as in hope, comfort in the sense of security, could be sought in us, separate and distant from God, that we could be the source of comfort and hope in life and death. Comfort, again, synonymous with this word hope. And thus ever since that moment that we ate of the forbidden tree, we have made much of ourselves and have made little of God. We have made much of the things in this world and have made very little of the God who made it. We see in Genesis the great construction of the Tower of Babel, a monument that was to celebrate the great achievement of mankind. Of course, we see that God did not allow such things to occur, and so he ceases the project. We are later told in the New Testament by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 to that man is to build their house in chapter 7 on what? On rock, not sand. For the house on sand will fall when, well, the, the house that's built on rock will remain standing forever. One lasts, one does not. 
In Mark 2, Jesus taught this when we were there many months ago now. You might remember uh, this particular verse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And we talked about how that meant, of course, the coming of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. The old is gone, new has come, classic Christian teaching, right? That there's something that we built that cannot hold new wine, right? It's not, it's not meant to. And then most recently we read in Mark 11 that as Jesus was approaching the temple in Jerusalem, that he sees this fig tree. Remember when he was hungry and he sees this fig tree? And he hoped that this tree would have fruit. And as he drew closer to this fig tree, he saw, of course, that it had none, no fruit. A tree would never, by Jesus' curse, bear fruit again. Of course, that tree uh, was synonymous or a symbol of the temple. All this to say this, that there are things in this world, friends, that last for a moment, for a time. There is some solace in these things, in the time that they exist. Some comfort for a moment, some hope for a period of time. But then, it's gone. It's gone because they do not last. They're not meant to be everlasting. But here's the interesting thing about mankind, about you and I. We will go after that which gives us comfort in life, and, they will, and we will seek it in all of the wrong places. And even the religious will place their hopes in all the wrong things. Even the Christian does this. Our passage today begins with one of the disciples drawing focus to what? The beauty and the grandeur of the temple. The majesty he perceived in its design and in its appearance. But like old wineskins, like the fig tree that could not bear fruit, this temple, as beautiful as it was, would burst and it would wither and it would cease. Its time had come. So friends, what does one do when we place our hope in all of the wrong things? Like this temple that gives the appearance of fortitude and beauty only to see it fall. Can you imagine the Jews in 66 to 70 AD after the Jewish-Roman War? What they must have thought when that temple crumbled. We look to the one who does not fall. We look not to the next thing of this world, but instead we look to the one and through we look to the one through and in whom all things were made. The one who draws close to us that we may draw close to him, the one who is the true temple, the body, the one who too will break, but be rebuilt in three days and will stand forever. Friends, we look to our only comfort in life and death. We look to Jesus. And that's my point for today. That you find your hope in Jesus, in all of life, all of death. I have two points to today's sermon. The first point is this, Jesus is our only hope in the midst of misleading. Jesus is our only hope in the midst of misleading. The second point is Jesus is our only hope in the midst of persecution. Misleading and persecution. Let's look at these two points. In verses 3 to 8, as we begin, turn your attention to those verses. After predicting the fall, of the temple, as he had done previously in verses 1 to 2, Jesus sits opposite the temple. So he's exited the temple, and he's now sitting across from it on what's called the Mount of Olives. Remember, that's where he began this journey. He went from the Mount of Olives to the temple, and he passed that fig tree. His exit is no small detail, for it marks the last time that Jesus will set foot in this temple to teach in his ministry on earth. 
where the disciples who were in awe of the appearance of the temple, Jesus leaves the temple disappointed of not what it looked like, but what it lacked on the inside, void of fruit. His dialogues with the members of the Sanhedrin, the so-called Jewish leaders, confirmed this reality to him. The dialogue with them confirmed it. The temple, by Jesus' account, had become a place of misleading, leading people astray. Ironically, the very thing that they were accusing Jesus of, that he was leading people astray. In fact, they were the ones leading them astray. Some of Jesus' closest disciples then come to him uh, in verse 3, and they ask him this question in private. Their question in verse 4 asks Jesus, when these things, the temple destruction, would happen? When will it happen, and how will they know that these things are happening, that the time had come? Now, I want to remind you of something. Remember that the disciples hear temple destruction, and what they are thinking in their minds is war with the Romans. Right? They're looking at political king, political throne, political kingdom, establishment of these things politically. And how do you do so? Historically, at least in Israel's history, by the sword. You go to battle. There's a, in Jewish um, messianic expectation and understanding, there's a very clear connection between the destruction of the temple and the marking of a new era of, uh, of an Israel kingdom. So they very closely tied the day of the destruction of the temple with the coming of the Messiah. Now, all of these terms in, Christian, in the Christian sense, of course, it's centered around Jesus. But in the Jewish sense, was highly political language. This was very like, you know, they were looking for the end of one era of, of a kingdom that signified a kingdom and then the beginning of another. Right? For who built the first, or who uh, started the construction of the first temple, right? It was Solomon, but the, by the idea of David, right? So new Davidic king, new temple, new all the stuff, right? That's what they're thinking as the Messiah comes in. So keep that in mind. That's what the disciples are thinking, right? They didn't know yet what Jesus meant by this prediction of the destruction of the temple. They're right in one sense, that the destruction of the temple would begin the reign of the Messiah, but they're wrong that it's simply an earthly kingdom. Jesus' response then follows in this chapter. This first section of his response that begins in verse 5, it's marked by the words, see to it, verse 5, and then verse 9, be on your guard. In the Greek, it's actually the same word, and the word just simply means be warned, be careful, be cautious. The warnings you will note do not actually speak to the question that's posed to him. Jesus focuses the disciples not on what to look for, here's when these things will happen, right? Although he gives us some prediction here, his focus is on what? Their steadfastness, their endurance, their perseverance, and their faithfulness to God. That's what his focus is. That's what Jesus is pointing at. Now, what is in this chapter and speech of Jesus is a mixture of both teachings on things that will occur at the time of the temple's fall in 66 to 70 AD, as well as the parousia, the second coming of Jesus, right? The return of the Messiah. Today's passage, verses 1 to 13, focuses simply on predictions of the destruction of the temple in 66 to 70 AD. Here's the first thing you need to know. Jesus warns disciples that those, uh, that of those who would claim to be Jesus, to, be, to claim to be a Messiah, right? The literal term that Jesus uses to describe what they will proclaim about themselves Jesus says, they will say, I am he, right? 
Well, what does that sound like to you? Well, that sounds like the ego eimi, the I am statement that Jesus uses of, of himself. The ego eimi statements that we find, for example, in the Gospel of John, seven of them. You know, very famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Those of you who've been coming to John Bible study, you've heard them all. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, right? Our church is called Sheep Gate, John 10. I am the shepherd, the good shepherd, right? We heard all these things. We also hear the I am statement in where? Famously, the burning bush, right? Moses asked, what will I say your name is? And he says, I am who I am, the ego me. I am is a very clear uh, connector to God, to the Jewish audience. This would have been obvious. Anyone who claims I am is saying I am God. And Jesus says many will come claiming themselves to be this Messiah, to be God. Josephus and other historians document for us a record, uh, and make record for us numerous men who claimed in the time of Jesus and after him to be God or to be the Messiah during uh, this time period. Many. We're not talking like two, three, four men. We're talking like countless, right? Uh, Josephus and other historians also note that in the time and life of Jesus and his earthly ministry, there were about 30 other dudes in the Galilean region that were claiming to be the Messiah as well. Of course, none of them were willing to die on a cross for it. Only one was. Of course, he was the son of God, the actual Messiah, right? It's not unusual, friends, to find people today who claim the same thing. I was watching a Netflix documentary this week. On, it's called Rael. It's about this guy who like got abducted. He's like from France, and he got abducted by aliens. And this is his claim. I don't, I'm not saying it's fact that he got abducted by aliens, although that'd be, that'd be a pretty cool story. But anyways, he says he got abducted by aliens who are the creators of Earth. Like, we're just some kind of science project. And apparently, um, they took him to their home planet, and there was like Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, and like, you know, all, like all those gods, right? And apparently they're all like friends. And then they, Jesus was like, hey, you're actually my brother, like my biological brother. And he got planted on earth to like preach like this, this new, you know, heavenly gospel to the, to the world. Um, and so he does so. Can you believe this guy actually has like hundreds of followers to this day today? They're also the first people who claim to have like cloned human beings. Because they believe in like this pseudoscience stuff and like, like it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But there are people who commit their lives to this stuff, believe in it, and actually think it's true. So when Jesus says, hey, there's going to be a bunch of people who's come and they say, ego me, I am he. And a lot of you will be dumb enough to follow them. That's what Jesus says, plainly here that a lot of people will fall into being misled by these so-called messiahs. My hope and dream one day, if, if I could ever achieve this in my earthly ministry, is this. Gather every Jesus on earth and ask which one of them is actually Jesus. Because there can only be one. And then we'll quickly find out none of them are Jesus, right? We'll have like a Jesus duel, maybe like a Jesus debate. Jesus versus Jesus, right? It's crazy how many Korean Jesus there are, isn't there? It's insane. Friends, it's not unusual to find such people who claim such ridiculous things. Jesus warned us of this. He warns and predicted all of this, and he predicts that many will follow them. It's important that we understand that anyone can claim by word to be the Messiah, but only one can claim to be the Messiah on the basis of his works. That is Jesus, the one who died 
and rose from the grave. We are not to hope in earthly saviors. Second point, we then get a warning in verses 7 to 8 of political strife, nation after nation. Wars will come, Jesus says. Nations will fight. Kingdoms will battle. But these are necessary things, he says. We know that at the time of the temple's fall, there was a great battle between the Jews and the Romans known as the Great Jewish Revolt. There isn't much, or sorry, war may seem distant to you, those of us here in Canada. But for many in the world, it's a tragic and grave reality. There isn't much to hope for, friends, in times of war. You can talk to your grandparents about this who perhaps lived through uh, world wars and or the Korean War. That you can understand and uh, you can resonate with them in some sense. You can just understand what they went through, but you can't understand until you go through it. But when you do, and if you do, and I hope you don't, friends, in times of war, there isn't much to hope for because you, you would just think to your minds like any invasion, any missile, anything that could like, immediately could end my life. There's not a lot of hope to hold on to when war is a reality on your doorstep. And so Jesus tells us plainly here, as nation after nation, kingdom after kingdom, that we are not to hope in earthly kingdoms. And then third, then we get a warning of earthquakes and famines. Now one can easily scour the internet and find historical data, as I did, on earthquakes during this time in the, in the area of the Middle East. There was an earthquake in Asia Minor. There was an earthquake in Jerusalem. There were a bunch of earthquakes. But whether or not it was an unusual amount or sort of like a providential you know, moment of earthquakes in, in Earth's history, uh, that's up for you to decide. But nevertheless, the Lord predicts such things today. And perhaps to draw our attention not to the, hey, when earthquakes come, you'll know that it's time for the temple to be destroyed. I don't know if that's really the point. I think the point is more so this, to draw our attention to these things, not so much as signs of the end, but as reminders of a reality of a dying world, of a fallen world. Famines would have to come to the Jews in the form of lacking supplies in the midst of war. But the real point again is this. It's not the predictive nature of Jesus' words here, but his teaching on the mind and heart of the believer. Again, to remind us that we are not to hope in what? In earthly realities. Like, look around you. You think air is just there for you all the time? That these things will just always be there for you all the time? Even an earthquake can take these things away. There's no security and hope in these things. People, institutions, and nature will mislead us. Give us a false sense of security, says John Stott. And so we are not to look to these things as our hope in life and in death. None of these things. And then we get to verses 9 to 13. So here's our second point. Jesus is our only hope in the midst of persecution. So he's specifically addressing the disciples, and then we can kind of stretch this out to the church. Verse 9 begins the second set of warnings. The first warning was to not be misled. The second is to not lose guard, and instead to lead others. Don't be misled, but lead others. Lead others to whom? To Christ, of course. What is predicted and promised here in this second section is the persecution that we find in the book of Acts, that we find in the historical records of the first century church. Certainly, history speaks to the reality of these things that have happened. Men like, for example, Polycarp. If you know Polycarp's story, by the way, it is an incredible martyrdom story. Like, it's almost like too good for it to be true. Uh, you can Google it and, fig and, and read it for yourself. Um, but Polycarp's story is, is quite extraordinary. 
the man was placed in a Roman arena, right? You're familiar with like the Colosseum, like that kind of setting. He was placed in the middle of arena to be killed by fire, burnt to death. Uh, he was set on fire. He was lit, and apparently, like a dove came and like rested on him and protected him. So we're talking like Daniel and his three friends, like in in the in the in the fiery furnace, or like you know da- Daniel in the lion's den moment, but like in history, like extra biblically, right? I don't know how much of this you want to believe, but he didn't burn, and so the fire could not consume him, and uh, eventually he's provoked. He's told, "Hey, we're gonna kill you unless you renounce your faith and pledge your allegiance to the Romans." So here, here are his words, Polycarp the Martyr. He writes, or he spoke these words. 86 years have I served him. He was 86, isn't that old? 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So you know what they do? They stab him to death. And he died. Polycarp the Martyr. Persecution comes in many forms and in many degrees to Christians in different eras and parts of the world. Even today, our persecution here differs from the Christians here in Canada. It differs from the Christians in underground churches in China or to those in underground churches in North Korea or in churches in Saudi Arabia. Like You think it's hard being a Christian here, right? What's our greatest complaint as Christians? Oh, I go to church and nobody loves me. Oh, I go to church and they don't welcome me. Oh, I go to church and like they're not nice or like they don't do this or the food sucks or the music sucks or blah, 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 blah. Yeah, try being killed for having a Bible in your house. It's kind of crazy that we complain about these things. Friends, this is a luxury. Bad music is a luxury. Right? A little a little weak in the hospitality area of a church. It's luxury. Luxury. We're spoiled. We're spoiled by grace. We don't treasure what we have because it hasn't been ever been taken away from us and a gun has never been pointed in our face. Millions of Christians in this world today would die to be in your seat right now. They would love it. I've met them. I sometimes wonder, I remi- I'm reminded of the story of this, um, a friend of mine who went to China and met this girl. And this girl was sharing how um, her family had immigrated to the U.S. Um, she was there along with them um, as part of the mission team. And she was sharing how she used to be part of the underground in China, underground church in China, sorry. And how passionate and how um, just faithful people in the underground church were to read their words, so desperate to hear the word preached, so desperate to praise God with God's people. She immigrated to the United States by just God's grace. Her family got there, got into a good school, and she started attending a church, and she was so excited. Oh, this is the U.S. Bible Belt. Like, this is going to be amazing. She goes to church, and all people are doing are they're complaining. They're complaining. They're whining saying this is bad that is bad finger pointing gossip tension people are not getting along her idea of the american church was completely destroyed and she thought to herself why is this the case my friend was talking to me about this story and i remember him telling me max sometimes i feel like we're not persecuted enough for our faith I'm not saying we should seek out persecution by any means. 
But friends, that when the scriptures say that we are refined by the refiner's fire, fire is not a thing you want to be consumed by. Fire is something that destroys minerals to create gold. Fire is something that people use to create glass from stone. Fire cleanses, but it does so through the process of pain and destruction. Perhaps the persecution, or perhaps persecution, or at least the idea of it, is an ingredient for refining us as believers. So if you're sitting here today going, I'm, I'm a little challenged in my faith here in Canada, and I'm sure there are areas of your life where you are. I want to challenge you to look at those things as opportunities of growth and of strengthening, not as defeat. Jesus tells us that the disciples will be delivered into the hands of their enemies, much like he. He will be this week, won't he? And he says these disciples of his will be delivered into courts to be judged and tested. They will be flogged and they will make testimony before whom? The, world, the leaders of the world. And for Christ's sake, they will do this. They will testify to him. They will testify and witness Jesus before these courts. The gospel, as verse 10 tells us, must be preached to the world in the midst of extreme persecution. The next verse encourages both disciples and us that our words and testimony are not purely our own. He says, don't worry. I know you suck at doing your testimony. You know, I've been, we've been doing testimonies here at church, right? From time to time, you know, even on Easter when we do our confirmation baptism, I'll ask, you know, some of our members who are getting confirmed or baptized to do their testimony. And, and anytime I ask someone to do their testimony, no one goes, oh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Actually, there's a few of them. I mean, those are weirdos. But everyone else, like, they're like, no, I don't, oh, no, Max, like, I'm, I'm too shy or I don't want to do this. Maybe I should just throw this verse at them. Don't worry. Your testimony, the words, the Spirit will guide you, right? It's the Spirit who works in us. Not to say you're inerrant or infallible in all that you speak, but the testimony that you give will have power and strength because the Spirit allows for it. What an incredible encouragement that Jesus gives to us. So we're to preach the gospel to the world even in our lacking because the Spirit empowers us to do so. The Spirit guides our speech as we rely on Him by faith and faithfully proclaim what we believe about Jesus. We are not friends to hope in earthly securities. Finally, in verse 12, it warns us something odd. It warns us of brothers turning on brothers, parents against children, and vice versa. What could this possibly mean? It is to say this, that although the gospel unites believers in Christ, it also draws lines in this world. As much as it unifies, it also divides. The truth works in this way. Why? Because truth is not always accepted by all. Think about everything we went through during the pandemic. Think about all that we debated about masks, vaccines, church policies, Black Lives Matter, Trump, etc. When someone holds to a truth, it will oppose those who believe in another. And we've become, because of, an inter because of the internet, I think, we've become so divided on political issues point where we cannot even get along when jesus says that he is the way the truth and the life and that no one goes to the father except through him friends that is a dividing statement why because it is exclusive there is one way i was watching a clip of a famous pastor joel osteen i hesitate to even call him pastor but anyways i was watching this you know 
Lakewood church pastor, right? Um, I was watching a famous clip of him. I watched it a long time ago. I just rewatched it. It showed up on my algorithm. And it was an interview that he has with Larry, on the Larry King show. And he's pressed on this matter. Larry King, you know, I think he's a religious guy. I, I don't know his background. But uh, he presses him on this matter. And he asks Joel Osteen whether or not someone who does not believe in Jesus as an exclusive way to heaven, uh, through, like salvation through faith in him alone, whether that person goes to hell if they don't believe in this truth that Jesus is their savior. Here's Osteen's answer. He says, I don't know their heart, only God knows it, so I can't say this or that about them. So I just love them. Now there's some truth to what he's saying, and I can understand why the you know, nominal Christian would see that as so alluring. Oh, what great advice, what great wisdom. Only God knows, so we should just love, right? No, the answer is very simple. If you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell. We like to avoid causing division by truth because we think it will deter people from Jesus. You know what doesn't deter people from Jesus? Clarity and truth and proclamation of it. In reality, we need to preach the truth properly with clarity in order that people will be drawn to Jesus, to the correct understanding of who he is. It's not uncommon in certain parts of the world to see families divide on the basis of truth shared some testimonies with you about people in Turkey, for example, right? Completely ostracized from their family, brothers trying to kill a sister. But all this to say this, Jesus is warning us, and this is an interesting one, we are not to hope in our earthly families. As great as it is, as great as our brother is, as great as our sister is, as loving and beautiful and great as our parents and our grandparents and our kids and their, and their kids, our grandkids, like all our cousins, all our uncles, all our aunts, family, bloodline, DNA, all this stuff, great. It is not your hope in life and in death. It's not. So what does all of this lead to? What does all of this teach? What am I trying for you? What am I trying to get across to you for you to understand today? Friends, what is our only comfort, our only hope in life and in death? I read to you again. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not to hope in earthly saviors. We are not to hope in earthly kingdoms. We are not to hope in earthly realities. We are not to hope in earthly securities. We are not to hope even in earthly families. We are to hope in Jesus Christ. For who is the Savior? Jesus. Who is the King of the eternal kingdom? It is Jesus, who is the voice over all creation and reality. Jesus, who is our greatest security? Jesus, who is our real brother? Jesus. Friends, I invite you to know him you don't know him yet things of earth will pass but those in christ will last this jesus came because there is no hope beyond beyond him in life and in death when this jerusalem temple falls and it did it fell it never rose again you know what's standing on the temple mount today a muslim mosque it's Al-Aqsa Mosque. That temple 
has never seen a sacrifice offered on it ever since 70 AD. Never. Isn't that incredible? Once Jesus died and that temple fell, it never rose again. But you know who did rise again? Jesus. He rose three days later, just as he promised. For he is the real temple. He is the greater temple. He is the one in whom we know we can and do have life, so long as we put our faith and trust in him. And he promises this to you today, that you will endure forever and will be saved so long as you trust in him. Look not to the things of earth as sources of hope, but instead look to him, our great and only hope in life and in death. Let's bow our heads in prayer and reflect on what God has taught us today.